Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Do you have any followers that you are pouring into that want to model their lives after yours? Today we will discuss how the Apostle Paul modeled true Christian love for his followers. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll begin our lesson. Our Father in heaven, thank you again for this day and for the opportunity to gather together. And thank you for our fathers that poured into us, those of us who have kids and some with grandkids. Help us be the fathers and grandfathers that you want us to be and pour into our kids. Father, as we continue our study of 1 Thessalonians today, I just ask you to open our heart and mind to hear what we need to hear. Continue to change us and let the discussion be guided by the Holy Spirit. Let it be your words, not my words. And we thank you for all the blessings you continue to pour out on us and into our families. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in 1 Thessalonians that we started last time. If you don't know where that is, it's just before... Well, the main book, it would be before Hebrews. If you get to Hebrews, flipping around, go back over to the left a little bit. What we talked about last time in the first chapter, remember this is written by Paul, and he was just talking about how the people in Thessalonica at the church there had been totally changed by hearing the word of God and hearing the gospel. And what an example that they were to others. In fact, even Paul didn't have to do as much preaching, didn't feel the need to come there because they were doing such a great job getting the gospel out. They were doing exactly what God has called us to do, and that is to make disciples of others. They were pouring themselves into others and sharing the gospel. And so that's really where we left off. But they were great examples. It says in verse 7 of chapter 1, they were great examples to all the believers And so let's pick up. We left off beginning with chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, so he's talking to the believers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Remember, there's three of them there that are together, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. You can see that right at the beginning of the first chapter. So he's saying that their coming to the people in Thessalonica, it was not a failure. At this time, there were lots of enemies of the gospel and false teachers that were trying to really discredit Paul and others who were preaching the gospel. They were calling his integrity and his sincerity to them into question. That's what they were doing. And Paul is going to say that, look, just judge his ministry by how effective it was and how they had been transformed. Their lives were totally different because they had heard the gospel and believed. And so base their belief on his ministry on what they've actually seen, their own experience, rather than what these false teachers were saying about Paul. These false teachers were saying Paul really didn't care about them. Remember, he got run out of Thessalonica and wanted to come back to them, but had not come back yet. And so they were saying that, see, Paul didn't really even care for you, which is not true. So let's go on. Verse 2, he says, But after we had already suffered, you could read that also to say, Even though we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. If you want to look at this account that Paul is referring to here, suffering and being mistreated, that's in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. 
He had been beaten. He was imprisoned. He was in stocks. He was falsely accused. You can read that story if you want to go look at it. But Paul still had total confidence in God. It's interesting. Paul viewed this mistreatment of him and the persecution that he was going through as a sign that he was indeed preaching the right thing. And it's taken me a while to get there, and I have to say I don't have this reaction all the time, but I think this is instructive to us, that when we're sharing the gospel with others or witnessing to other people, we will get it. I mean, Jesus said that from time to time we're going to be persecuted. We'll get it from time to time from people that say, oh, you believe all that Jesus stuff, or you're crazy, or I don't want to hear all that nonsense, or they'll call you all kinds of different things. And I used to really be offended by that. And I've got to tell you now, after spending so much time and seeing what Paul in particular went through, but they all went through it. By the way, all the apostles, they all died martyrs' deaths other than the apostle John, who was still exiled to Patmos. They went through a whole lot worse than what we will ever have to go through. So I've gotten to where now when I get that from whoever it is, it's kind of like I rejoice a little bit. I still pray for them. I feel sorry for them that they're lost. But like Paul, this is confirmation that whatever I'm saying is the right thing. And if we can get a little bit more of that attitude, just expect it. Expect to be rejected. And when you're not, really rejoice. But don't let it get us down because it's to be expected. And we see Paul's reaction. He still had boldness to then keep teaching, keep preaching, keep speaking the gospel, even though there was much opposition. He says, verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Exhortation means this urgent cry and appeal that he was sharing the gospel with people. It wasn't by error, meaning deception. There was no false teaching in his message. It wasn't impure. He didn't have an impure motive. And he certainly wasn't doing it by deceit, trickery. Many false teachers, they taught all kinds of things. They even taught sexual impurity as a way to get right with the gods. That's not at all what Paul was teaching. He's saying what he teaches came from God. Verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our heart. Paul's ministry was commissioned by God. Jesus called Paul to be an apostle. He wasn't self-appointed. You can look at that in Acts 9, verses 1 through 18, if you want to go and look at that. But he knew that he was going to be accountable to God. God looks at our hearts. You see this? God examines our hearts. God's going to examine what our motives are, even when we're sharing the gospel. Are we doing it to bring glory to ourselves, or are we doing it to bring glory to God? Let me show you one verse. You don't have to go over there. I'll just show you real quick. It's Galatians 1.10, and this is also from Paul. He says, For am I seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ." Paul wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He was doing it because he knew that that's what God had called him to do, and he knew he was going to have to give an accounting for his preaching. There's a lot of enemies of the gospel and of Scripture that seek to persecute, discredit those who do speak the truth. They do that to try to attack people's credibility because they can't attack the truth. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised when other people come at us or say bad things about us. Just don't worry about it. A lot of people also get themselves into trouble trying to please men. Unfortunately, many, many of our churches have pastors who are there for the wrong reasons. They're there to make a name for themselves. They might be there for the money. And a lot of them now, in order to keep their congregation, are just telling them what the congregation wants to hear rather than truly speaking truth. They'll avoid some of the difficult passages that our culture doesn't want to embrace any longer. And that's just wrong. They're doing it for the wrong reasons. Paul is saying, and he's given a great example, He's not doing it to make a name for himself. He's not doing it to try to please men. He's doing it because this is what God asked him to do, and he wants to please God. Verse 5, For we never came with flattering speech, so great oratory. He didn't come giving them all a bunch of compliments, what have you. He says, As you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is a witness. Paul wasn't doing it to try to get money from them. In fact, I'll show you real quick. Let me just go over there. Paul continued to work, and we'll see more of that even later in our passage today. Acts 20, I'll go to verse 33. Let me just go over there real quick. I'm going to be referring to Acts quite a bit today. And this is Paul writing, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. So Paul even continued, and we'll see more of this here shortly, he even stayed in his tent-making business. He would work on tents, building tents at night to sell to support his ministry. He didn't want to take money from the people that he was ministering to, even though he was entitled to it, because he never wanted anyone to even think he was doing it for the money. That's Paul. He wanted to do it all for God's glory. Let me see. I might want to show you one other verse here. Yeah, this is about how our motives are going to be evaluated by God. I'm over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5. This says, again, this is Paul, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court In fact, I do not even examine myself. So he's saying, if you even want to judge me, that doesn't even bother me. Verse 4, he says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So he doesn't worry about what other people think about him. All he cares about is what does the Lord think about him. Verse 5, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and here's the key, and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So even when you might be doing a good thing, like giving to charity would be a great example. You know, that's a good thing. But if you're doing it for the wrong reason, you're doing it to bring glory to yourself, then that's not honoring God. So no matter what we're doing, are we doing it for the right reason? I'm going back over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. He says, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, 
even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. This we, I don't know if he's talking about him, Silas, and Timothy who were with him at that time, or he may be just referring to the 12 apostles who were specifically called as apostles. Silas and Timothy were called by the church to serve, but Paul never abused his authority as an apostle. You never see him using his authority as an apostle to try to gain an advantage or lord it over people, anything like that. He humbly served everyone that God put around him. It says he didn't seek glory, so he wasn't seeking accolades. He wasn't seeking praise. He did it for the eternal rewards and to glorify God, not to make a name for himself. Paul's motive for preaching the gospel, it was really to try to help others grow in their personal relationship with the Lord. That was so different from what the false teachers were claiming that Paul was up to. And as I looked at this, you look at Paul, he had such tremendous spiritual leadership, tenacity, integrity. He certainly had authority, but he felt accountable and had this humility about him in the whole way that he would just constantly keep ministering to people. And as I read this, I got to tell you what kept hitting me on my heart was even this group. Am I doing this for the right reason? I got to tell you, I love you guys. I certainly am not doing this to make a name for myself. I really love you guys. And anyone who's even listening to this after the recording, I do this because I truly want to help people. And the thing that's amazing is I know I couldn't have done this without the Holy Spirit. This is not me. There's no way I would even have the patience to do this. It's amazing to see the way the Holy Spirit has worked in putting this group together giving us the word to be able to discuss among ourselves and each time bring something new to light to all of us. It really is amazing to me, and I'm humbled by it. These words of Paul, I want to keep in my own mind to make sure I am doing it to glorify God. But at the same time, I will say, and this might be my flesh, but I do appreciate the emails that I do get from time to time, people encouraging me or You know, they'll hear a message, somebody hearing a recording and shooting me a note saying, wow, that really spoke to me today. I've been struggling in this area. So I do appreciate that encouragement, but I just ask the Holy Spirit to keep me humble and have me do this to bring glory to God, not me. Okay, verse seven, what Paul's going to do now is going to give sort of a little contrast. He's going to talk about how he's been not only like a mother, but also like a father and a brother to the congregation there, in contrast to the false teachers who are just doing it for the money or doing it to make a name for themselves or doing it to bring glory to themselves. He says in verse 7, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. His motives were to just be gentle with everyone. He showed compassion, sacrificial love to everyone, patience with people. He was very loyal. He wasn't trying to exploit them at all. He really had this sense of caring for them. We see in verse 8, Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So not only was he teaching the gospel to these people, but he was pouring himself into them. He was teaching them about how to live a godly life. And again, he's talking about, he says we and our, he's talking about Silas and Timothy as well. 
They unselfishly gave of themselves because they truly cared about them. It wasn't superficial. They truly wanted to help these people grow in their faith, in their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul worked at night, as I said, making these tents in order to support his mission so that he could then pour himself into all these people. He didn't want any compensation from them. He didn't want anyone thinking he was doing it for the money. And he just poured his life into these people. Let me show you another. We'll get to it. If you just hold your finger here, go over to 2 Thessalonians 3. He's going to mention something similar when we get over there in a few weeks. Verse 7 He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this. They could have asked for it. The Bible is clear that you're to take care of your pastors and teachers. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. So that's this humility that Paul had. Constantly thinking about how to serve people and be devoted to them. Okay, let's go back over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devotely and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. The people there, they saw it themselves. They could see the way Paul and the others were treating them and how they did truly care about them. What's coming into my mind right now as I think about this is, how do other people see us? Clearly, this congregation saw this in Paul. But do others see this in us? I mean, who are we pouring ourselves into? Who are we just totally devoted to? Hopefully our families. But what about beyond that? Is there anybody that would look to any of us and go, wow, man, I don't know what I'd do without Larry or any of you, insert your name. I mean, he just cares about us. He pours himself into us all the time. He's taught us so much. Who are we doing that for? How can we model our life like Paul is describing here so that when we get to heaven and we're standing in front of Jesus, he can say, okay, let's have a little review. What'd you do with your life? in all the opportunities I gave to you. Who did you pour yourself into? Because remember, those were some of his last words. Go make disciples. So how are we doing? Just a little something to think about. So now I'm in verse 10. You are a witness, and so is God, how devotely and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. So now he's talking about, you're going to see, he's going to mention Father in a minute. He's talking about, being a father to them as well for his children, his spiritual children. He was teaching them spiritual things. He says in verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So it's a father's role to instruct his children to walk in the way, really walk the talk. As a good father, your children will see right through it if you're not walking the talk. You can have the greatest things coming out of your mouth It's one thing to talk, but how are we actually living out our life in a way that our children and our spiritual children, you ought to have spiritual children. That's how it was meant to be. So who are you pouring into? This exhorting, that's teaching, encouragement, not always criticizing. And I was probably bad at that as a father. I probably criticized too much. Providing encouragement, 
helping people learn from their mistakes. And this just came into my head. This is a great example. This may be more in a work setting, but it can be true of your kids. In order to help people grow, you got to empower them. You got to give them a chance to act. And when you empower others, they're going to make a mistake. They just are, okay? Especially if it's something they haven't done before. You should expect there's going to be a mistake. And if you come on to them criticizing, they're not going to want to step out and try something new ever again. You got to be an encourager and realize, you know what? When we were growing up, we made mistakes all the time. Little kids have to pull up, I can't remember how many hundreds of times before they learn to walk. And we don't jump on infants because they keep falling down every time they pull up on the table. We go, wow, man, that's progress. That's awesome. You know, that's how we ought to be because they got to take the baby steps first before they can walk and then run. Maybe this will be a good example for you. Many of you know I was a competitive sailboat racer for several decades. And our team routinely finished in the top three. And the type of boat I raced was they were all the same, identical. You couldn't change anything on your boat. In fact, they wouldn't even let you buy new sails except every so often. The idea was keep the boats all exactly the same. It all comes down to the crew and your tactics and what have you. And our team knew the reason that we were so competitive and typically finished in the top three, because we all knew everybody out here is going to make a mistake. Every boat is going to make a mistake. When we make our mistake, we're going to recover the fastest. We're not going to get down about it. We're going to say, well, there was our mistake. We're going to recover. We're going to get back on track and go. And that's why we would win. And sometimes my crew would be little kids, and I'd be racing all adults, and we'd still kick their tail. And it was because nobody complained, and you could hear them yelling on all the other boats when somebody made a mistake. And that's just distracting. And so think about your kids, your grandkids, the people you work with, the people that you're pouring into. Expect them to make a mistake, but learn from it and get back on track and go, okay? If you're not making a mistake, you're not learning. I'll just tell you that right now. You're playing safe ball, and that's not the way to grow. Okay, I digress. Let's go back to the text. Go back to the text. That's on being a winner. Okay, let's see. So we're in verse 11. Imploring, that word means testifying. That could be things like explaining to people there's consequences to sin. If you don't place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's going to be eternal punishment to non-believers. But then we need to live our lives in a way that they see that we have been transformed, that we're just not talking. We've actually had transformation in our own lives. And when we make a mistake, own up to it. And why do you do all this as a father? He says in verse 12, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So this walk, that's daily living. That's growing up, being spiritually mature. And you see, God calls us. This is divine election. God has called us into his kingdom. We are already God's children. That's what this is saying. We are ambassadors of Christ here, so we should live and act like it. But there's nothing we do here to earn our way. God has already elected us, selected us. We are in the kingdom. That's done. So we ought to live our lives in a way that shows how much we appreciate what Jesus has done for us, that we are his children. Do other people look at us the way we act and say, wow, you're clearly a child of God? Verse 13, and for this reason, we also constantly thank God 
that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And so Paul here, he's really contrasting all the revelation that the Jewish people and the Jewish nation had received from God. And yet you're going to see, he's going to say they killed the prophets, they killed Jesus. And he's going to compare them to what he's seeing in the Thessalonians, that they heard God's word and they believed it. As soon as they heard it, they believed the gospel and their own lives have transformed. They've seen it. Let me just give you a quick example of when he first got there and started talking to them. Acts 17 is where the account is. Go over there with me. So this is on one of Paul's missionary journeys. And I'll just start in in verse 1. He said, now when they had traveled through, and there's these towns, but this they is Paul and Silas and Timothy. You can look in verse 4 and verse 14 here. Uh, We won't get to all of that, but that's who's with him. They came to Thessalonica, okay? So this is the people where he's writing the letter to that we're studying today, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So these are the Jews at the synagogue, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks. So see, I told you at the beginning, this letter is written mainly to Greeks. Some Jews converted, but the church in Thessalonica was mainly Greek. And you're going to see why that is. He says, and also a number of the leading women. Verse 5, but the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in uproar. This is Thessalonica. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come back here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So Jason, we're going to see, pledged to send Paul and Silas on their way to send them on. Basically, you could look at it like Jason posted bond for them, okay? Said, don't worry, I'll get them out of here. But it was because Jason loved them as well as the others. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. They went to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So that's what happened. That was when Paul got there and he was sharing the gospel, which created this church in Thessalonica. Okay, so that's what he's referring to in verse 13. Go back over to First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where we left off. He was talking about when he came there and Paul is thanking them that they received the word and they honored God's message. And they continued to persevere in their faith, even though they were being persecuted. They weren't like the Jewish people there who rejected them and ran them out of town. Paul is saying, look, you believed it, not because it was our word, but he's saying it was God's words that were spoken through them. And they accepted it and embraced it for what it was, God's words. And God's words, the scripture, it effectively worked on them in a supernatural way to save them, transform them, mature them, and really then give them hope. Go over and look at this. I'm going to take over to 1 Corinthians 1, which is just after Acts. You got Acts, Romans, then 1 Corinthians. 
And I'm going to start in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Doesn't this sound like our culture? God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not that he might nullify things that are, that no man should boast before God, but by his doing. There it is again. It's given to us. It's not by anything we've done. It's by God's doing. You are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. That's where we get our righteousness. It's imputed to us. We don't earn it. And sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's just so pleased. He came there to Thessalonica. They heard the word of God. They accepted it. It's transformed their lives. Let's go back over to 1 Thessalonians where we left off, and I'll finish this out. Verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, that's Jews and Gentiles, even as they did the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus. So Jesus came to the Jews, and they killed him. And the prophets, they killed the prophets, and they drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, but that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So let me unpack this a little bit. He's contrasting the way they received the gospel compared to initially the Jews who Jesus came for. The Jews were God's chosen nation to be a light to bring the Gentiles and everybody else to the one and true God, and yet they failed in their mission. In fact, they even killed the prophets. There's plenty of verses. I can give you a ton of verses on where the Jewish people would just kill the prophets back in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a couple of those. Let me just show you what I'm talking about. They killed Jesus and they killed the prophets who God would send to them. I've got so many verses I could show you, but these will be instructive. Go over to Matthew. I'm just going to focus this on Matthew. Let's go over to Matthew. First book, we're going to start in Matthew 22, verse 31. This is Jesus speaking. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. They killed God's representatives and messengers. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Okay, so that's Jesus talking. Let me show you another one. 
go to the left, go to chapter 21 of Matthew, just a few pages over, and I'm going to start in at verse 33. Listen to this parable, and this is exactly what happened. Listen to this. This is Jesus talking. Listen to another parable, and we studied this in depth when we were over studying Matthew. Jesus says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time came, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce, meaning the rent for the land, his share of the produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, well, they'll respect my son. This is Christ, basically. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? So Jesus is talking to the multitudes, the Jewish people, and he's saying, Here's this story. Now, when this all happens, now what do you think the vine grower is going to do to those people? Okay? He's asking them. And they answered. They said to him, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Yeah, see, that's what he'll do. And Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone, talking about Jesus. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but on whom it falls it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priest and the Pharisees, so these are the religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And what was their reaction? Even given this prophecy that they're going to reject the cornerstone, what was their reaction? Verse 46, And when they sought to seize him, they became afraid of the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. And later we'll see they're going to seize him. And another key verse, and this will just break your heart, chapter 27 of Matthew, so go to the right. This is how darkened their minds became. Go to chapter 27, and I'm going to begin at verse 20. So here were the chief priests and the elders. This was their reaction. They persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. So you wonder why it seems sometimes when you're talking to Jewish people that you just can't break through. This is what they said. Put his blood on our hands and on our children's hands. Now let me quickly follow up to say, I killed Jesus and you killed Jesus. 
All right, we can look at this and just say, I can't believe they did that with all the miracles. But if Jesus didn't die and then be raised from the dead, our sins wouldn't be forgiven. So Jesus had to die in order that our sins could be forgiven. He paid our debt. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. It's what Jesus did for us. We killed him too. So just keep that in mind. Let's go back to our text, 1 Thessalonians. What Paul is saying is this gospel is so powerful and it has the ability to transform you if you'll just read it and listen. When you feel the Holy Spirit tapping on your heart, place your faith in Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit and this whole book just opens up to your mind where you can understand it. Let's see where I left off. What he's saying is people, when they reject Jesus Christ, there is going to be eternal punishment. If you don't believe it, if you don't believe the power of the word, just look at your own life and the way it has transformed. And I think we ought to sometimes look at our life. How have we transformed? We're not perfect. None of us are perfect. And we won't be perfect until we die. That's when the sanctification process is finished or Jesus returns before that. We're going to stumble. But just the fact that when we stumble, we feel guilt and remorse and we ask for forgiveness and we get back on track and say, okay, I'm going to recover. I'm going to recover quickly. Get back on track. Get back into the game. Verse 17, I'll finish this out. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. They had been run out of town. They hadn't been gone that long. Paul's saying Paul was still there with them in spirit. They were in his heart. They were in his prayers. Paul here is, in a way, expressing his very deep compassion for them. He really cared about them. And he's saying the Jewish people didn't. They just keep persecuting you, at least the persecuting Jewish people, not the believers. Verse 18, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. So he wanted to return to see them, but somehow Satan prevented Paul from returning. But Paul was so pleased with the way that they'd handled their own persecution and they had grown in their faith. Verse 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? So glory is going to come to everyone at Jesus' return. This return, it might be the rapture. It might be his second coming just prior to the beginning of the millennial kingdom. But Paul is saying he's so excited because he knows all these believers that he ministered to, they're going to be there with him. And it's all to bring glory to Jesus Christ, who has made all this possible. And he says in verse 20, For you are our glory and joy. He took great joy from seeing the way they had transformed and embraced the gospel because of their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So just to summarize what we studied today We need to spend more time thinking about what God thinks rather than trying to receive accolades from our friends and others around us. It's okay to plan, but we need to leave room for God to change our plans, just like Paul. Paul constantly was trying to get back to him, but couldn't, and God was using Paul in another way. He probably planned to stay there longer until he got run out of town, and God had other plans for him. So it's okay to plan. I'm a planner but then leave open the fact that God may have a different plan for you. True faith is shown by our obedience to God's word and walking in a way that brings glory to God. Do people see that we are trying to live a holy life? Our actions should reflect the working of Jesus Christ in our life through the Holy Spirit. And my question is, 
does it? How do people really see us? Do they see the transformation that's happened in our life? We should express our love and caring and gratitude to others because we're so thankful for what Jesus has done for us. But yet at the same time, we should expect opposition when we share the gospel with others. Just expect it to happen. And you've heard me say this before. This is one of my favorite quotes I've ever seen. And I've researched. There's lots of people that it's attributed to. So it probably means it's not attributable to any of those. It's this quote. It's people will seldom remember what you say, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And so if we could just leave here today and think about our actions and our words and trying to do things in a way that make people see the glory of God working through us and make them feel good, encourage them. After we encounter others, do they leave refreshed and feeling great or do they leave us feeling drained? Like, man, I don't know if I want that experience again. Or are they looking forward to seeing us again because of how we made them feel? I know I've got some work to do in that area. So let's all pray to the Holy Spirit to continue his work in our lives to transform us and make us more Christ-like. So what else resonated with you in the lesson today? Just the way Paul lived his life, is there anything that really resonated with you today that you go, man, Paul, wow. And remember, he was a Christian terrorist. He was killing Christians, all right? And look what God can do in him. So none of us should sit here and go, well, you don't understand my life. I mean... I'm such a mess. I'm such a sinner. I just don't see any way God could use me. I don't think any of you all have killed Christians. God used Paul in a powerful way. And even if you did, he can still use you. We should take such encouragement away from reading these letters from Paul. Well, Larry, the reason I enjoy this so much is I get reminded my shallow humanness. I can backslide as soon as I walk out of here. I can start that backsliding. I come here because I want to be nourished and educated and reminded. I want the Holy Spirit to reveal all that in me. It's great to get to experience this together because I just need it so badly. It's not a big revelation, but, you know, in a simple perspective, that's the reason I'm here. Well, we all need it. And that's why God gave us his book. He wants us to study it. He wants us to see these examples of people to model our lives after And we've read it several times now in the last couple of letters where Paul is saying, I can see you imitating me, or I can see the way you've been transformed, that you're hearing what I'm saying. One big takeaway we should all have is it's great that we all gather together Tuesdays and those who listen to the recordings, that they listen to them on a regular basis. That's fantastic. I'm so delighted. But if we're just doing it just to gain some knowledge or to check a box, the question I have is what effect is it having in our life? Even my preparing the lesson, what effect is that having on me? Am I just preparing a lesson to come teach and then it isn't having an effect on me? I hope not. I mean, I can actually look back and there's so many of these lessons that I've gone, wow, I'd never read it that way. I need to focus in this area of my life to change. I'm just going to ask all of us to be more mindful of that. Let's come to this. Let's listen to this. Those who listen remote, let's listen, but let's try to take something away. And if there's just one thing you take away today and say, I'm going to walk out of that door, and this week I'm going to focus on this area. This is what I want to change. Holy Spirit, I can't do it by myself. Help me. Help me. Make me mindful. 
and give me a trial so I can try it on. Wherever I keep stumbling, bring it on and let me get through it this time with your power. That's how you show that you're growing. And that then should be huge encouragement to us because we couldn't have done that on our own. We can't do any of this on our own. But if the Holy Spirit changes us, that's saving faith. And then we can live a life that other people want to imitate. Paul's pleased they're imitating him. Is there anybody imitating us? That's kind of a scary thought, actually, as I think about it. Who's imitating us? Are we living a life that somebody would want to emulate? And if not, what do we need to do to change? I think we need to learn to use those tools. And when we do get that opportunity, stop believing that small voice that you hear in the back of your mind that says, hey, wait a minute, this is out of your league. You can't do that. Don't do that. That's the enemy talking to you. He does not want us to succeed. But with these tools, Larry, that you've given us, we can take and can move mountains. We can make a difference in someone's life. I agree with you. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to start doing more. I'm going to take your challenge and try to reach outside and get out and not listen to that small voice and experience the goodness of God. He will not fail us. He will not let us fall on our face. He'll help us open those doors. When that door opens, he'll help us walk through it. Thank you for the tools. Thank you for that. That's a great summary. And we all pass by those opportunities each and every day, every single day. I'm convinced of it. Every day we're walking by those opportunities because we're forgetting that our time is not our time. It's God's time. And instead of using God's time to do what God wants us to do, we're using God's time. We're hijacking it to do what we want to do. That's really good. You know, my thoughts are, I hang around so many people, uh, myself included, that criticize, criticize, criticize. And I think a better approach is to educate and encourage and just kind of be gentle in your approach and avoid these hugely negative, as a general rule, just be uplifting and not leave with just all this negativity that goes on. That's really good, especially in our culture today. You know, all the news channels. If you just go eavesdrop on most conversations, like around lunch or something, the first thing people start talking about is whatever negative is going on in the culture, whatever it might be. I think that's an excellent example of places that we can bring something positive to the discussion rather than just the negativity and divisiveness that's in the culture. That's great. I think we all have a little challenge before us. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.